Welcome to CNAS Live, a podcast that brings you recordings of public events from the Center for a New American Security. What you're hearing today is a previously recorded conversation, but we invite you to visit cnas.org slash events to learn more about upcoming discussions and ways to connect with us. Thanks so much to all of you for joining today's virtual roundtable. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic has forced many nonprofits to adapt to rapidly changing circumstances, stay home orders, limits on the number of people who can attend gatherings, school closures, travel restrictions, and other public health measures have reshaped most of our day-to-day lives for some or all of the past seven months. Organizations dedicated to serving veterans and their caregivers must be particularly mindful of prioritizing safety in designing and implementing programs given the potential increased susceptibility of the veteran population. Many veterans are in high-risk groups due to age, others due to lung conditions related to burn pit exposure we may have had. Nonprofit organizations must also consider whether the populations they serve are increasing increased or different Um, needs due to high unemployment rates or subsequent financial stressors, reduced opportunities for in-person social support, and increased need for mental health services. This panel discussion will focus on the changes undertaken by four veteran-serving nonprofits that have different focus areas. Topics we expect to cover include what changes they've made to programming, how participation has shifted, what lessons learned they have cataloged, and whether they expect any of these changes to remain relevant to the future of veteran support post-pandemic. I'm very pleased that CNAS is able to host today's discussion on these vital issues. And now I'd like to turn it over to our fantastic guest moderator, Dr. Rajiv Ramchand, who is currently a senior behavioral scientist at the RAND Corporation. He's also worked at the Cohen Veterans Network and the Bob Woodruff Foundation. Rajiv is a fantastic researcher and an incisive thinker. Over to you. Thanks so much, Kayla. And thank you to CNAS and Kayla and Natalie for organizing and hosting today's um, panel. I'm really as excited to learn from the panelists as you all are. Um, In February, just as background as to why I'm here, um, when I was at the Bob Woodruff Foundation at the emergence of uh, the COVID pandemic, um, our team put together a report uh, looking at how COVID-19 would affect veterans and the organizations that serve them. Um, We raised four concerns with respect to nonprofits specifically. First, we worried about limited cash in their reserves, and we knew from data that 50% of nonprofits in America had around one month's reserves in in their accounts. And so it was obviously a concern for us. Um, Coupled with that was what we thought would be potentially reductions in community giving to nonprofits. Second, we raised concern about limited technical capabilities. As things shifted over to a virtual platforms, we, le- we wondered whether uh, organizations had the capacity to meet the demand and the technical capabilities to do so. We also raised concern about the ability of organizations and their staff to maintain the continuity of what they were already providing, how they would just keep meeting with their needs and keep um, pursuing their activities and and their mission and their agendas. And relatedly, we were concerned about what the COVID pandemic and associated unemployment and um, conditions would have for how new needs would emerge um, and how veteran service serving nonprofits would be able to meet the needs, uh, these increased needs. 
Um, so I hope that we're going to be able to talk about some of those areas today now that it's you know six months later. Um, but before we do, I'm just going to introduce our panelists, our esteemed um, panel of veteran service, non veteran serving nonprofit members and leaders. So first is Tracy Farrell. She's an Army veteran and she's a passionate believer in improved emotional and mental well-being through peer connection and physical movement. She's at the Wounded Warrior Project where she oversees uh, national programming designed to engage and educate warriors and their families on the benefits of the same. Renee Foster is a Navy veteran and serves as the advisor to the Mission Continues Women's Veteran Leadership Program. In addition to her role as advisor, she's passionate about helping veterans empower their communities. And she was recognized by the Virginia Department of Veteran Services as the 2020 Virginia Women Veterans Summit Changemaker. Congratulations, Renee, on that awesome accomplishment. Brian Jenkins is the Executive Director of the Armed Services Arts Partnership, which we all casually know as ASAP. Um, and that helps veterans, service members, military families, and caregivers thrive through community and the arts. And last but not least is Jennifer McInday. She's an award-winning author. She's also military caregiver for her brother, James, who's a combat-wounded Iraq War veteran and the proud mother of a United States Marine veteran. In 2009, Jennifer co-authored Friends for Life, Strangers Brought Together by the War in Iraq, which received an Eric Hoffer Agency for Legacy, for Legacy Nonfiction Award. Jennifer was named an Elizabeth Dole Foundation Fellow in 2014. So congratulations, Jennifer, on all those accomplishments as well. If you have any questions, please type them into the QA and the chat section. We'll be monitoring them. I'll be monitoring them. Um, and we're definitely going to turn to the community's questions at around 1245. So that gives us around 40 minutes for some questions that we've prepared or that I've prepared. And so the first one that I'd like to ask all of the panelists is to discuss whether they've seen changes in the needs of veterans they serve in this era of COVID. And specifically, what were the most pressing needs you were seeing among the population you served prior to COVID and what are the most pressing needs that you see now? And we'll just start how I introduced you. So Tracy. Hi, thanks Rajiv. So I think uh, to set the, the stage, as you said, pre-COVID, the top requests that we received were for mental health assistance, benefits and employment assistance. Um, additionally, our 2019 annual warrior survey indicated that the top five self-reported injuries and health problems were sleep, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, muscular skeletal issues, and depression. And this pandemic didn't uh, dissuade us from doing a survey this year as well, as well. So answers from that were exactly the same. However, due to the fact that we launched the survey in May, at the beginning of May, we added some questions to address some of our suspected concerns. And those initial challenges included combating isolation, increase in need for mental health services, as mentioned, and the impact of the VA and healthcare services shutdown. Some interesting statistics that came out of that was three in five individuals agreed with the statement, I feel more disconnected from my family, friends, or community during this time. More than half agreed that their mental health is worse than social distancing, and more than ha almost half agree that their physical health is worse than social distancing. So obviously some impacts that right there. But to that end of talking about financial wellness and employment, 
more than two in five agreed that they have been experiencing challenges related to their employment due to COVID. And about one third agreed with the statement that they have or expect to run out of money for myself or my family. Likewise, the unemployment rate of our population significantly increased from to 16% compared to 12% in 2019. Gosh, okay. Thanks, Tracy. Those are staggering statistics. Renee, what about from the Mission Continues perspective? What were the changes that you saw um, pre and post COVID in the needs of who you serve? So in, in the beginning, post, I mean, pre-COVID, um, the veterans um, had the need basically for the social gathering, um, the willingness to have a purpose that's bigger than them, something that they can actually um, look forward to. In other words, they wanted to continue the mission. Um, so even that post-COVID, uh, we did a survey in April where 100% um, of the respondents that were surveyed st still said they wanted to continue to serve. So we just kind of based that off of um, the survey and we kind of continued to find ways to for them to continue their service. Um, 40% of them said they had, you know, the feeling of social isolation um, that was after, during COVID. And um, there was about 35% that said they had um, the feeling of being depressed from not being able to do the gatherings. So we basically pivoted to doing more things social, I mean, virtually, than actually um, continue to do the large gatherings until we found out, felt it was safe for them to do so. Um, and then after that, we kind of launched various operations, a lot of operations outside. Um, one in particular was Operation Nourish, uh, where the platoons took on with a willingness. Um, our platoon in Tampa, they gathered and distributed over 5,000 pounds of produce and vegetables and things um, to um, various families down in that area. And even myself as a veteran, I rely on, even though I'm employed by Mission Continues, I rely on the gatherings as well. Um, found myself actually wanting the, the social isolation as well and wanting to get out and wanting to be more involved in the community, wanting to continue the service, actually just wanting to help. Because as a veteran in the midst of a crisis, that's what we are kind of trained to do, to be there, to help, you know, find out where we fit in and that's what we do. And um, we kind of did the same thing here in Hampton Roads. Um, we, when things was kind of uh, on the downside for here in Virginia, we were able to go back out into and do gatherings. We did small gatherings in a community garden where we increased their growing space. We basically tripled it. Um, and we have harvested um, a couple of thousand pounds of produce there and was given away to the community free of charge to those that was deeply in need. Um, that had lost jobs and that were, you know, um, in the need of finding things um, to eat. And um, basically we shift from in-person gatherings back to virtual and now we do a combination of both. So um, it has definitely been a test, but I can definitely say as TMC, we have stood the test of time and we have um, overcame all the obstacles that pretty much have faced us in the challenge. And our veterans are loving us for that. Um, they're willing to just get out there and still make it happen. We did over 300 virtual events, gatherings with veterans gathering online, just for that connectedness, um, just to be and build that camaraderie back up. So, um, so it definitely, um, COVID threw a wrench, a monkey wrench in our plans, but we kicked the heck out of it. So. That's awesome. That's great. 
Um, cool. I'm going to um, actually, I, that's really interesting how you were able to continue. And I think what, what, a follow-up question I'll ask you about kind of monitoring the conditions for deciding to, to re-engage outdoors and having these social gatherings. So I think that's really important and interesting. Brian, what about ASAP? Uh, you know, you serve people who, and you help veterans thrive through the community partnerships and the arts. What were the changes that you saw pre and post COVID and kind of the people that you serve, the veterans that you serve? I think Tracy and Renee really touched on a lot of the same themes that we have been seeing in our data um, and themes that were also really clear from the report that you worked on Rajiv uh, with the Bob Woodruff Foundation um, where we were seeing uh, issues with social isolation, loneliness, uh, higher levels of depression and stress among our participants. Um, one thing that I found particularly interesting is that, so a, a key feature of our m and &E system is pre and post surveys for um, one of our six week programs. And uh, progressively throughout this year, we have seen each set of pre-surveys show lower overall levels of psychological well-being. So uh, the spring participants indicated lower pre-levels of well-being than we would have seen in previous years. Uh, and then our summer participants showed even lower levels of overall psychological well-being uh, than in the spring and in previous years. So, you know, the effects of COVID uh, certainly were really, they were fully present in the spring, but the longer they stay with us, the deeper the effects seem to be becoming. Uh, that, you know, even though stay-at-home orders are not as uh, stringent and that folks are starting to be able to go out and, uh, you know, these, these regulations are changing, we're still seeing increasing negative effects um, on our community of participants. That's tough. Jennifer, I have a, you know, a place in my heart for caregivers in the Elizabeth Dole Foundation, as I um, was one of the authors with Terry Tenelian back in 2014 of Hidden Heroes. Um, and I know that caregivers were already experiencing a lot of challenges associated with their caregiving duties. What has the Elizabeth Dole Foundation seen um, changes in the needs and, and presentations of caregivers, of military and veteran caregivers uh, in the wake of COVID? Well, initially, we heard from a lot of caregivers who were having trouble finding information and understanding how they were going to navigate uh, their veterans' medical needs when facilities were closing down, uh, home health workers were not as accessible as they once were, services were um, temporarily put on hold. And also a lot of our caregivers provide hands-on medical care. So they were having trouble finding basic needs, personal protection, sanitizer, having trouble finding a disinfectant, gloves. Uh, and so initially that was a major concern. We have been able to connect caregivers online through a number of, of events and activities even before COVID because, you know, we found that caregivers connect that way uh, for, because the, their time is so crunched. And what we discovered is that caregivers now were having to facilitate uh, telehealth in their home. Some of them didn't have reliable internet or the equipment to facilitate telehealth. And then they were also uh, becoming teachers in their home. And so they're already stretched for time. And, and that had a, an emotional and, and mental impact on our caregivers as well. So they're trying to juggle so many things. You know, one of the things that we heard from caregivers is, 
The one break I get sometimes is when we go to the VA or when we go to an event um, with an organization. And so taking that away really took away some of their respite opportunities. And that's been a huge ongoing need for caregivers, the need for respite care so that they could take a short break. Uh, we also surveyed our constituents and responded by talking to our partners and uh, putting together an online virtual program called C3, Caregiver Community Connection, which brought our partner organizations to our caregivers to offer them learning opportunities. We, we covered meditation, personal health and wellness. We even cooked uh, tacos on Cinco de Mayo with the CEO of Window Warrior Project, Mike Lennington, and the CEO of Elizabeth Dole Foundation, Steve Schwab. It was a lot of fun. And we've been trying to give caregivers some fun opportunities. We also held a talent show called Military Kids Have Talent just to get the, get the kids excited about doing something, even though they were staying at home. And going forward, we're working hard to offer even more online opportunities, but we're also working with Windware Project and CareLinks to deliver something called respite relief. And we're excited to be able to offer caregivers the opportunity to have someone come to their home safely uh, and give them the break, help them with household chores or errands so that they can take some time for themselves. This has been a long run. Jennifer, that's really interesting. I kind of want to, I want to stay with you um, for the next question. Everyone kind of talked about social isolation. I think about the care and what you were saying just reminded me, especially early on the pandemic when there was the rush for toilet paper and sanitizer. And I could imagine, you know, for the caregivers at home like that, how that may have increased their stress. It was stressful for all of us. Um, and I'm sure, you know, for caregivers who have this additional responsibility, many of whom, as you said, are parents and whatnot, it must have been really, really, um, the need must have been really great. We, you're talking about respite and like encouraging respite. And we know that the time caregivers spend providing care is one of the things that, you know, contributes to some of the negative consequences of caregiving, like depression. How, how have, how has the Elizabeth Dole Foundation kind of navigated kind of all these restrictions, like having people come into your house, you know, for, to provide respite or, you know, social, like people who were disconnected before um, trying to show them or alert them to this online community that you've created or the, the C3 um, network. How's the Elizabeth Dole Foundation kind of navigated, I guess, what you would call these public health measures that have been put in place to safeguard our health um, to ensure that you know, they can still function and make use of these services. And I'm sure it's still ongoing, but, but how, what, what, have, what have they done so far? The wonderful thing about the Elizabeth Dole Foundation is they're all about collaboration. And, and so the team has worked really hard with their partners to, to make sure that they're able to provide what the caregivers need and what the veterans need where they are. Not every veteran and, and their caregiver are able to have someone come into the home and help. But if you could get some respite to have somebody go to the grocery store for you um, or, or run errands to pick up supplies, those are really important things, too, that take some time. And, um, and so I think by offering flexible respite care, um, we've been able to, to fill that need to just get some time back in your day. You know, respite doesn't necessarily mean a trip away from home. It can mean sitting in a chair for an hour reading a book and having a cup of tea. 
Um, for me, I have to say I have struggled as well as a caregiver. Initially, my brother had surgery in early March and I had trouble finding disinfectant and sanitizer and rubbing alcohol. Um, and, and I felt isolated and alone and so did he. But the way that we've gotten through that is by engaging through the Dole Foundation, through our partner organizations and being willing to try something new, to try this whole Zoom entertainment technology. Um, my, our mission continues. Platoon has also done some um, online and some in-person events. And we were, we've been grateful that those opportunities are available. But I think being flexible with what the caregiver and veterans needs are and what their concerns are um, is the key to providing the services that they need. Sorry, that's great. And, you know, I hope maybe we can talk about this with the group at, um, at 1245, but something that in your answer that I've always been struck with are the people who are more willing to make that leap to try out that Zoom call. Um, are they the, like, do we, you know, social, of course, they're impacted by social isolation, but they are willing to try something new. And I'm curious if any organization, and, and we don't have to talk about this now, but if any organization has tried to reach out to potentially the most vulnerable, you know, the, um, I don't want to stereotype, so I, I won't, but, you know, the people who are less willing to make that leap to the Zoom call or who are, may not have the strongest internet connection, how are we going to be reaching some of those populations that are the most vulnerable? But we can save that um, because I think it's a very hard, I don't know if anyone has the answer, it's a hard one. Um, but Renee, I wanna to turn to you. You, the, the path of the mission continues um, that you described opening in, in the opening statement was so interesting in the sense that, you know, everyone just wanted to volunteer and we know that volunteering is so good for your own personal well-being. Um, what, did, what does online volunteering look like at Mission Continues? How are you kind of meeting that need? And then how did you assess, okay, like, and I don't know, maybe you can talk about it. Are your volunteers traveling to locations and like the blitzes that you do, or are they still kind of staying in their home communities? And how do you kind of navigate this social gathering component for volunteer efforts? How are you kind of ensuring that your volunteers stay safe, but also are meeting, you know, the community's needs as well as their own individual needs? That's a loaded question, I know, but. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll start with, um, so Operation Nourish is a um, operation that we launched during COVID uh, because there is so much food insecurity within um, pretty much area, every area that we we have a platoon in, there's food insecurity, and we are we were already working in those areas. So we turned our focus more so to food insecurity. Um, with that came um, innovative ways of doing virtual, like we sent out seedlings and different things of that nature, little pots and things. And we did an online virtual session to show you how to plant seeds and start those seedlings. And once those seedlings get to a specific height, um, you, we don't gather them and um, actually donated them to a community garden or you allowed them to grow and then you donated your pr produce to the community or whatever. So that's kind of how we navigated that. And then when it was, when once we kind of saw things coming, not really coming down, because I can't say it's coming down with COVID right now, who knows about that. But um, we follow the guidelines of every state that we're in. So whatever the guidelines for that state was is how we judge whether we were going back into communities and we practice those social distancing. Masks are required at every event. 
the PLs were equipped with uh, thermometers to check um, temperatures as people came in. Um, you're Sorry. on mute. <laughs> Just for clarification, PLs are the platoon leaders for each of the Correct. groups. Correct. Okay. So the PLs are the platoon leaders. Um, and they were given a specific list of guidelines to follow according to what their state guidelines were in order to host an in-person event. And we kind of kept those events, uh, those gatherings small and, and, and outside. Um, so that we could would be able to practice those six feet apart. Um, so that's kind of how we navigated that. Um, we also did social events, I mean, um, virtual events where it was just social, whether it was a karaoke night, a trivia night, or just, you know, we had alumni that come in and they gave specific classes on their expertise. Um, so that's kind of how we navigated through that. Awesome. I'm gonna switch gears a little bit, because um, Brian, I think it, I don't, I forget when it was actually released, but it was either early in the pandemic or right before it that ASAP came out with this major evaluation report. And as a researcher, of course, I love that, you know, they had that you put the resources and time and energy into an evaluation. I'm curious, how did those results and how did that in evaluation inform? kind of how you navigated the COVID pandemic, how you best meet the needs or adapted to the to change to meet the needs of the veterans uh, during this time? Uh, it was immensely valuable. Uh, it, it, it completely, it, it was, everything that we did at the beginning of COVID was informed by the results of that study. So I, just as a, a very quick background for the folks who are watching, uh, you know, ASAP is a, a fairly young organization, five, six years old, and uh, so to, you know, for us to do a full evaluation of our programs was uh, so important to us early on to make sure that we were having the outcomes that we were looking for uh, and that we believed we had from our anecdotal evidence, but we wanted, you know, externally validated scales to show us that we were actually having the outcomes we, we, we thought we were. Um, so we had some incredible um, advisors who helped us through that, Terry Tenelian, advised us on the design of the study uh, and, and made sure that it was as rigorous as possible. Uh, and so at the beginning of COVID, the M&E system that came out of that evaluation, when it was telling us we're seeing these lower pre-levels uh, of well-being, that kind of gave us a sense of urgency for how we needed to respond. Uh, and so when we pivoted to a virtual context, we we brought all of our all of our comedy and arts and uh, performing arts classes into the virtual space and opened them up nationwide, uh, which for us were we've historically been a mid Atlantic organization, uh, and uh, we've been working on uh, developing a sustainable, thoughtful national growth strategy. And this was a, a great opportunity for us to reach more veterans with these programs. Uh, and so we went from three states to 30 states in four months with our participants. Um, and because of the study, we were able to see uh, not only how was COVID affecting our participants, but we were also able to see what the differences were in the outcomes for our virtual programs versus in-person. We were able to compare that data. And when we were able to compare that data, we could see what the weaknesses of virtual programs are so that we could adapt to them. Uh, you know, one example would be that we saw uh, uh, meaningful relationships were lower 
in virtual programming than in-person programming, which is intuitive. It's not surprising necessarily to us, but to have it in quantitative data means, okay, that means we need to change the design of this program to try and make it um, a more effective in a virtual context. So, and we did that. Uh, we, we made several changes that involved more uh, time where, with our participants connecting with mentors in the classroom, uh, smaller class sizes, two instructors instead of one, uh, lots of changes that we're now seeing in our summer data uh, showing higher levels of meaningful relationships, more on par with our uh, pre-COVID outcomes. So it was extremely important to us uh, to use that data to figure out what was not working in a virtual space and how we could how we could meet that need. Especially if I could jump in on something Brian said that I think we've yeah, probably all all experienced, right? And educators across the nation have experienced this as well. The fact that you can't just take an in-person event and put it on Zoom or put it on Facebook Live and expect to have the same outcomes or impact. Um, and that was a hard lesson learned for some of, some of our teammates as well that had never engaged in this virtual space. And I think if anything comes out of the last six months, it's the richness of our virtual programming for every organization now, because we've kind of tweaked that creative lens that we have to know that we have to learn how to engage in this environment as well as face-to-face. -face. And if we don't, we're not gonna succeed as veteran service organizations, nonprofits moving forward. That, and that leads to my question. So first I was gonna say, you know, if, um, Brian, if that report is publicly available and you wanna throw it in the chat for people who are interested, I mean, I think Absolutely. why not? And same, and Tracy for the, the new survey that Wounded Warrior, I don't know if it's yet available, but um, that'd be great too. Um, but to, to this point that you just made about, so you adapt, you learned that what works, I guess what I'm curious to know is how did you learn that what works you, know, you can't just take an on, uh, in-person event and switch it to online. Were you tracking outcomes? Um, was that part of your whole strategy? And how do you continue to learn? I knew the Wonder Warrior Project has been doing a lot of outcome-based tracking and monitoring. How fundamental and how is that, how instrumental is that to your kind of pivoting of programming right now? Oh, it's, it's absolutely integrative in any type of programming you do, Rajiv. Um, when we transition to virtual programming back at the end of March, beginning of April, we immediately changed our surveys to capture not only, hey, are you having a great um, experience here, but to keep some of the same questions so we can do the comparison that Brian mentioned earlier with every one of our disciplines. And we have this rich um, tapestry of individuals who participate in our programming. 35,000 almost have participated in the last six months. Now, not everyone answers the survey, of course. But from the responses that we get and from the anecdotal evidence that we get from emails, we've been able to tweak programming and do some training for our teammates so that they can learn how to better engage. We use social platforms, not just Zoom, but Facebook Live, Discord, which is a gaming platform, Strava, which is a biking platform, all have different requirements of, of how you bring people into it and how you keep them in it. Um, and so just by looking at the surveys on a monthly and quarterly basis, reporting up to both our chiefs, our board, and sharing the information with our teams, we've really had some great successes. And we'll continue to do virtual programming when nobody has to ever wear a mask anymore. That's great. And Allah, I mean, it, I also think it's great, you know, when something isn't successful, if you're monitoring it, you can know, okay, we've got to 
adapt. We have to change to, to Brian's point and your point earlier. I think that's really critical. Um, you know, I'm just encouraging people. We have two questions I know already. We're going to get to them because they're both really good ones. Um, I want to throw something out there. We, what I started talking about was this kind of the, the reserves and the financing of these organizations. And I'm curious, have you seen how concerning um, was, you know, were financial resources that your organization has potentially to meet increased demand? And have you witnessed um, changes in community giving that have had to that have forced you to sh that have forced you to shift how you think about fundraising and doing outreach? And I put that out to any and all of you. Does anyone want to go first? You can just raise your hand. So I, I <laughs> Brian, go ahead. Well, Tracy, right. don't, don't go for it. Okay. So, so um, I think the ah, I'm, <laughs> so I think the, okay, the we'll, we'll have Tracy go first. Stuff. We'll have Tracy go first. Okay. <laughs> so, so traditional as a large nonprofit, we have many funding streams, as you can imagine. However, one that we did see an impact in is the face-to-face -face fundraising, specifically 5K. We have a 5K that we do across in different cities across the nation. But this has created an opportunity to do that peer-to-peer -peer fundraising in the virtual space. So whether it be through gaming, which we use now, as well as uh, hosting your own 5K and running in your neighborhood and asking, hey, I, I'm from Wounded Warrior Project, please uh, donate to this cause. I think that the virtual uh, fundraising has opened up many gates right now. Brian, you want to add anything? Totally agree with you, Tracy. Um, I think so peer-to-peer -peer fundraising is, is crucial, more crucial than ever uh, right now. Um, at the same time, I would actually say that major donors have become more important in 2020 than ever before, in part because a lot of those major philanthropists have been um, less affected by the economic crisis that we're experiencing. Um, I would also say that something that's been very valuable is seeing funders, uh, foundations adjust. So uh, Bob Woodger Foundation, for example, did an expedited grant cycle, which was uh, just it was so encouraging as a nonprofit leader to have a, a close partner like them choose to, to expedite their cycle and, and go through that earlier on in the year so that there would be less uncertainty for us as we were planning our future programming. Um, a, a big challenge that I think a lot of nonprofits have had is a, a decimation of event revenue, right? So uh, and Tracy mentioned the 5K, there are other, other kinds of things for us. As, a, as an arts organization, 35% of our annual revenue historically comes from two events, one performance in DC and one performance in New York City. Both had to be completely canceled this year. Uh, and so for us, uh, major donors stepping up to the plate, foundations being more flexible, and, uh, and then uh, Lastly, having organizations provide COVID-specific relief, foundations provide COVID-specific relief has been uh, very meaningful for us as well. I think for, from Elizabeth Dole Foundation standpoint, you know, those in-person fundraising events are so important. Some organizations have one major event a year, the Elizabeth Dole Foundation's annual gala is coming up next week, uh, but they've shifted. All, all online and it's going to be free and open to the public. And we've seen so many people register and so many funders 
wanting to engage and to engage their staff. Um, so before, you know, being able to attend a virtual gala, purchasing maybe a table of eight, you couldn't share that experience with your entire staff to show them this is the organization we're supporting and here's why. But now you can invite, you know, a, a staff of a thousand if you want to attend a virtual gala. And also, I think it's been key to educate donors and funders about more about the constituents that they're supporting and about how the organization has shifted to answer the needs of COVID. And I think by regularly communicating with the folks that are supporting your organization, you continue to build trust and you continue those relationships that are so important. That's right. And you all are doing work that is so important. And as we've talked earlier, the needs of the communities that you serve are so great and the services that you're providing are so needed. Um, that education is critical. You know, we can't lose sight of that, um, that education. I'm gonna pivot, even though I said we were gonna wait till 12.45 for questions. There's a, a really good one that I wanna throw out there to anyone. Um, it comes from, um, as Brian mentioned before, Terry Chilean. Um, and she writes, I'm gonna read it exactly. I've heard a lot of concerns um, not just about adapting to meet the challenging need, the changing needs of the population, but about your own workforces during the shift to remote work and the necessary shift to fundraising. Can you discuss how you've, uh, how your organization has supported its workforce as its transition to these new conditions that we're all learning to, to, to go through? I put that out to anyone. So we, um... We're actually now, now starting one October in a voluntary back to work uh, in the office as we talked a little bit before. But I think transparent communication has been the biggest asset since the start of this in March. That and, and having grace, knowing that there are kids in the house, as Jennifer mentioned earlier, that you're balancing the kids, you're balancing the dog, you're balancing um, not having barriers where you actually shut the day down. Um, and so I think, especially at first, there was this sense of we will take care of those we serve, but we also need to emphasize the self-care and the thought that leaders are responsible for caring for their teams. Um, and it's a twofold approach. And I think it continues throughout 2021 and beyond. It was a great, we've always been very transparent in our communication as an organization, both externally and internally, but we amped it up like 10 times during this, this period. I also want to want to say that just an understanding that uh, the team is been working so hard to transition every single part of the business. You know, the Elizabeth Dole Foundation is headquartered in Washington D.C. They have a few remote staff members, but but primarily everyone had to leave uh, the you know their environment where they've been executing for the organization and understanding that that in of itself that transition is hard. It's hard on, on our professional image. It's um, certainly required a lot of juggling. And I think making support available, whether it's um, through EAPs or by having, uh, giving folks flexible time so that they can to get away from the Zoom and also encouraging people to take their paid time off uh, because we, we have now access to work so many more hours than we did when we were going to the office. And I think it's important, as Tracy said, to have grace as a leader, have grace with your people, um, and understand that your constituents don't expect you to work 
um, 24 seven, 365. Renee, were you gonna say something? I saw that you, you took your mic out. Yes, so with Mission Continues, um, it was very, um, became very flexible with us. Um, they did the thing where we called it Summer Fridays, where Fridays became half days for us. Um, and we just went back to full Fridays here as of October 1, but also making sure that we built in self-care for ourselves. So um, encouraging us to take that hour. So if we need it to exercise or whatever our self-care um, look like for ourselves, strongly encouraging that. Um, and then also the flexibility, um, just knowing that the kids are in the house, the dogs are in the house, every, everybody's in the house but just the flexibility that everyone, you know, having to work away from the office and at home. So it was greatly, it, I think it greatly helped all of us. I know it definitely helped me through, through this transition, just to be able to take that time to decompress um, and say, okay, work is here, work is gonna continue. And actually I saw my work um, increase, my productivity increase because I, I didn't feel as challenged and as stressed. Um, that I had to have meet this deadline or I had to do this because now I was more relaxed and I knew I had built in self-care time that, hey, and I put it on my calendar that that's where my self-care was going to be, whatever it looked like for me that day, um, that I ensured that I took took that opportunity to do self-care. That's great. Thanks. So I've just got you know five more minutes. I know we have two other questions already in the chat and I hope others will add to, to yours and you can ask them to a specific panelist or all the panelists. My last question that I wanna ask for, for at least for now is what have you learned during this experience when we get to this post COVID world, whatever that looks like, um, let's say we're back to normal, quote unquote, what lessons do you think that as an organization you'll carry with you? Um, for the long haul. And I, <laughs> Brian immediately took his mic off. So we'll start with you because you obviously have something to say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I would say that, so virtual programming is not a substitute for in-person programming, but it is a supplement uh, that it's crucial. Tracy mentioned that it's going to be part of Wounded Warriors programming in the future and it will be part of ours forever as well. Um, we've one one really meaningful benefit of virtual programming that we didn't think about beforehand, uh, or at least I didn't really spend a lot of time thinking about, is how it increases the accessibility of your programs to individuals who might not be able to participate because of where they're located or what their individual experience is, whether there's something with social anxiety or if they have physical health challenges that prevent them from being at your program in person. Uh, it's, it's very valuable for us to be able to connect with those individuals um, through virtual programs. Uh, and then it's also an opportunity for us to learn more about where people are who are interested in our programs so that we know where we should focus our resources to bring place, uh, bring our work in person as well. Um, I would say that's the number one takeaway that we have. I, I totally agree with Brian. Um, definitely the virtual programming still will be in play. Um, we, at the beginning of COVID in March, we launched our, our very first cohort of the Women's Veteran Leadership Program. And we got to meet in person for one session and then we totally went virtual after that. So uh, second cohort lunch here in December, which will be totally virtual. Um, so um, the ability for the mission continues to adapt and overcome and still present a very uh, strong program 
to the participants and still meet in the, in the face of the challenges that we were in, um, I think is things that we would continue to carry on um, in the future. I think the, um, one of the biggest takeaways is that we have to keep talking. We have to keep talking to our constituents, um, asking how their lives are changing and what, and what their needs are, and talking to one another. I think the collaboration between BSOs is invaluable, um, not only sharing best practices, but talking about what, what hasn't worked and how to, how to make it better in the future. Um, we are going to have to constantly be changing. I think a number of us were uh, pretty comfortable before COVID with the programs we were offering, the services that we were um, providing, and had to really, you know, change change boats midstream. That's not easy to do, um, and we've we've learned what our capabilities are, and they're enormous, but they're strengthened when we rely on one another. Yeah, I think two anecdotes that that are really quick that highlight what everyone just said. We had somebody that attended an event that lived in a really rural part of the Northwest, had never attended an event with us for three years. They've been registered with us. Single dad, just could never get childcare, didn't want to deal with putting all the kids in the car, but attended his first event via virtual. That was because the barriers that Brian talked about were completely removed. There wasn't anxiety about it, there wasn't the hassle, and it was accessible. Likewise, we find that more women are attending our virtual events than they had our face-to-face -face events. Now, why that is, we're still digging in, but it could be the same thing. Don't have to care about childcare, don't have to get dressed up, don't have to get everyone in the car, don't have to juggle all the schedules that we all talked about. So we are reaching, all of us are reaching people that perhaps we wouldn't have reached before, and that's why we're gonna continue with it. That's um, great. One of the questions actually from the audience is about this outreach. Um, and the question is, are you, who's capturing data to ensure coverage in terms of veterans in the community are reached or interested veterans, I say, I should say in the community are reached. Are you monitoring, um, the question is very spe specifically, is there, is there any program that utilizes traditional services to connect with veterans in all of the majority of communities? So, um, how are you ensuring kind of that you're reaching out, that you're conducting that outreach and making sure that all veterans know about your programs, know what you have to offer and are able to access it? And I, I put that out to anyone. The, I think the, the strongest, sorry, go. <laughs> go. The, well, the Elizabeth Dole Foundation has had the need to reach caregivers across the nation um, at the time that they were able to connect. And so by having an, a really strong online facing, we, we've always been able to, to be accessible to our caregivers. But um, as Tracy pointed out, we've had caregivers engage with us who never engaged before because they've had some of those barriers lifted. Um, I think capturing data from people that you've never met before provides some new insights into what your community looks like. And so it's actually been a good thing to reach some of those new folks and, and to see how the community has evolved. Okay, we'll go the next question. And, and I think Renee is really well suited to, um, to answer this one, but we'll link it to all of you. So um, many of you rely on volunteers. How have you handled concerns that volunteers have about returning to 
service, um, we should say. So, so how are you, when you depend on volunteers, how do you handle and communicate with them about their concerns and their safety concerns about uh, returning to their volunteer duty and status? Um, again, like for our in-person events, we definitely stress the, the ability to wear masks and do outside events, um, that we are following the guidelines of whatever that state rules and regulations that are around COVID. So uh, we want to ensure them that that's what we're going to abide by. And when they show up or if they show up, that we are definitely abiding by those rules, making sure we have hand sanitizers on site, making sure we have a space that you can constantly wash your hands, having gloves if you want to wear gloves on top of, your, you know, uh, on your hands or whatever. So ensuring that we have all the safety measures um, that's required um, in place for them when they get there to events. I, I would agree with Renee. I, I think that it's, it's about going above and beyond and communicating expectations upfront as well, making sure that folks know what precautions will be taken before they arrive uh, at whatever event you're hosting. We've only been able to do a couple of in-person events uh, since starting, uh, since COVID began. But that's certainly how we're thinking about it as we move forward. We don't want there to be any question about the rigor of precautions that we're taking uh, when somebody, anybody, whether it's a staff member, a participant, or a volunteer is participating in something in person. We've also been encouraging um, virtual volunteerism, uh, whether it's connecting with an organization that has a peer support program or um, even something as simple as writing a letter or getting ready to unveil a, a platform online where the public can send well wishes to caregivers. And I think that's really important. You know, folks want to connect, they want to volunteer and the volunteers, um, you know, may, may have limitations on, on how they can interact. And because we're all virtual right now, we have limitations on what we can offer them. So I think it's important to think about virtual volunteerism. Great. I'm curious, you know, when I was uh, at the Bob Winter Foundation, there was the National Veterans Intermediary that provided opportunities for regional clusters of like um, collaboratives, uh, veteran serving collaboratives to kind of join and they had meetings where they could just kind of talk about what they were going through. Have you, have any of you found um, other partnerships with other veteran service organizations um, to kind of weather the storm together, to kind of learn from each other about how they're dealing, to kind of maybe have some uh, handoffs of, of members who might be you know, looking for, you know, a more arts-oriented programming that, um, for ASAP or, or just financially, how are you weathering kind of this, this lack of having um, events available? I'm just curious whether there's that partnership exists and whether you've benefited from working with other nonprofits, whether they're veteran service, serving nonprofits or others. Oh, we have, we've absolutely found that to be the case. So uh, it's been very interesting. Uh, one, one benefit, so our, uh, the instructors of our programs are mostly veterans than, who have gone through the, our program themselves. It's a leadership development program where they go through that cycle, they're trained to teach comedy or teach storytelling and then they turn around and they, they teach their peers. Uh, but we, we invest all of this training into these individuals and we know that the military community can be quite transient. You know, there, there are moves, cross country moves that happen so much. Uh, and so we will train these folks and then they're moved to another location and we can no longer work with them. Uh, but 
one of the benefits of virtual is all of a sudden all of those folks were available to us again. And we had this massively increased capacity to host programs. Uh, and we reduced our operational costs so that we can invest more in programming. Uh, and then Tracy, we didn't talk about this before the call, but um, you know, with Wounded Warrior, we've actually hosted um, almost 15 arts, comedy and arts workshops, uh, two warriors uh, with several different regions across the country, which has given uh, the warriors an opportunity to engage in the arts and have a, a different kind of uh, opportunity to connect with one another, build skills, find community. Um, we've re-engaged our instructors uh, and it's, it's been an opportunity for us to continue our mission as well. Uh, so that's that kind of partnership has been really exciting to see. Yeah, to, to highlight what Brian said, we have done events with TMC, <laughs> with ASAP, with EDF, with RWB, the list goes on and on. Um, and it's not just sharing the resources, it's sharing the information, sharing the talent, um, and hopefully creating a warm handoff at a local scale or a national scale so that veterans and their families and caregivers can have the support they need in their communities, um, not just virtually, but physically. And I totally, uh, Brian, we have alumni that have hosted uh, comedy shows, virtual comedy shows yeah. for us. Yeah. Uh, we are always partnering with Wounded Warrior um, for different events or different things. So we've kind of like a tight knit family here, close knit family. So. It wouldn't be possible for us to offer the amount of respite relief uh, that we have for caregivers without the generosity of Window Warrior Project, who has supported the Elizabethville Foundation since the RAND study that you were part of, Rajiv, back in that came out in 2014. And I, and I think that speaks a lot to the strength of collaboration. You know, when um, veteran service organizations work together, we can serve more veterans and the, give uh, that warm handoff to either a local entity or another organization that's able to fit the need for the veteran and their family. And I also just want to, you know, say there's a lot of fortitude um, in these organizations. We don't, employ 100% veterans and we don't we but we certainly have a number of them and I think their strength and resiliency that they've brought to the organization from their time in service has made such a difference in how we've weathered these uncertain times. So we have three questions from the audience all of which are very hefty so and we have five minutes if, if less than that probably so um, this next one I think is actually a really interesting one a really good important one that while we've been focusing our discussion on COVID, but during this time, there's been other, you know, really national kind of events. Um, most, most, uh, most noteworthy, I think, is this racial reckoning is the, is the way the question was wor worded and this attention towards uh, a legacy of systemic racism in the United States and um, real anger and upset with law enforcement. We're wondering how have your organizations addressed this kind of parallel uh, epidemic, if you will, or, or have they, and, and how is it going to change moving forward in your organization? So for us, um, we're taking a look internally. We have a diversity and inclusion group um, that meets on a weekly basis and they talk about the organization and have, will be issuing a survey and we'll just be looking at where do we have gaps, if we have gaps and how might we improve. So we're starting within, um, which I think is, is the most important part. 
So uh, this has been such a crucial conversation for us throughout this entire year. It's been just as present as COVID has. Uh, and so for us, part of, our, part of our values as an organization is making sure that we are a space where veterans, service members, military family members, and caregivers of all shades and stripes and colors can have their voices heard and their stories heard. Uh, and so making sure that we are a safe space uh, for those stories to be amplified uh, has been a, a big focus for us this year. Uh, and that's something that we want to work on and become better at in the future, making sure that there are actually specific opportunities for us to highlight the stories of Black veterans, for example, uh, to highlight the stories of people. Another issue, uh, uh, Vanessa Guillen and her story has been really amplified this year and giving space for stories of military sexual trauma uh, to, to raise awareness about those things. Uh, we see part of our, our role as amplifying those stories, amplifying those voices so that uh, people can actually share their experiences and be, be heard. Um, one other piece that I do want to mention as well, to Tracy's point, is looking internally um, and revise, uh, re-looking over our hiring practices and seeing, you know, how can we make our hiring practices truly anti-racist? And how do we need to change our recruitment strategies for our board to ensure that we're representing the community that we serve? Um, I think those are, those are all conversations that uh, have been happening for a while and, uh, and action really needs to be taken more aggressively. And that's, that's what we're working on. For, for the mission continues, we are considered, we always have considered ourselves a safe space, um, regardless of race, creed, sexual preference. Regardless, um, we've always considered ourselves to be a safe space, but just as Tracy and Brian said, we, uh, we first start internally, ensuring that we are, you know, with the, we call it diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, because we want to make sure that just not inclusion, but we want equity across the board as well. So we started internally looking at our hiring practices as well and looking at the board to make sure that the board represents the actual people that we serve and not only the people that we serve, um, the veterans, but the communities that we serve as well. So um, that has been the strategy with us going forward. Great. Um, I'm, there are three questions that we didn't get to from the audience, which I'm very sorry about, but I know that it's 1257 where I'm supposed to turn it back over to Kayla um, and to thank you. But before I do, um, again, Kayla, thank you. But more importantly, Tracy, Renee, Jennifer, Brian, um, thank you all for taking the time and for just having such a frank an open conversation. I just learned so much from it and I really applaud all that you're doing um, to help serve this community and this population and all that you're, all the efforts that you, you had, you undertook to, to, to do this work and to pivot in the face of these challenging times. Thank you, Rajiv. Thank you. I want to echo Rajiv's thanks to all of the panelists for participating in this really important conversation. And also thank you, Rajiv, so much for framing the issue so thoughtfully and moderating a deeply necessary discussion. Thanks as well to Natalie for the behind the scenes orchestration of all the details. Um, for those of you who don't know, in addition to being a, a program director here at CNAS, I'm also a veteran and a caregiver myself, and CNAS is a nonprofit as well. So it was fascinating for me to hear the extent to which many of my personal and professional experiences since the pandemic have been broadly shared among um, my colleagues and among 
the constituents that they're serving. And it was also really interesting to hear about the ways in which these dedicated organizations are seeking to meet changing and growing needs. We did record this session and we're planning to release the audio as a podcast if you want to share it with your uh, networks later on. And I've also heard from a couple other organizations who wished that they could be panelists to share what they're doing. So I know there's a lot of interest in the community. Um, we didn't get to questions from Carolyn, Joyce, and Melissa. And so if we decide to end up having a follow-up event to share some other perspectives, we will hold on to those questions and save them for a potential future session. If you want to learn about future events like this one, please go to cnas.org and click follow to sign up for email updates from the Military Veterans and Society Program or any of the other great programs across the organization. And please follow CNASDC on Twitter. Thank you so much to everyone for joining us today and have a fantastic afternoon. You've been listening to CNAS Live. To receive invitations to future public events, and to learn more about our experts' work, visit cnas.org join. You can also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.